Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. What is my book about and what am I talking about? And today is actually a very good day to show you why this subject is so important. You can look at what the Dow was doing when I was, came out of my hotel room. I think it was down 120 points. And it was down because um, a Greek deal has still not been put together. So while these countries may seem a long way away from Dallas, um, the inability of countries to sort their debts out is a very, very significant fact. And if you look back over history, the very idea that sovereign debt is risk-free is very strange. If you go back all the way, the first example I have in my book is a guy called Dionysus of Syracuse, and his, um, he had a lot of debts, and his bright idea was to get all the coins in the area to be surrendered to him on pain of death. There's, a, there's a, something the IRS should try. <laughs> he had all the one drachma coins restamped as two drachma coins, used the half of the coins to pay off his debts, returned everything else to the people, and that, that was the problem sorted. So m monarchs traditionally were the biggest debtors, and they, of course, could change the laws, and indeed they could imprison, and in the French case, they could often execute their creditors, which is what quite a lot of French politicians would like to do to hedge funds right now. So it, it is a long tradition that governments are indeed not, risk-free, but quite risky to lend to. And the Greek example is a very good one as well. You have uh, a deal being hammered out in which the EU is trying to get the three leading parties in Greece to commit to various spending cuts in things like the minimum wage and in pensions. And uh, naturally, this is not popular with the voters. Uh, and they're trying to pre-commit the politicians to carry on with such a policy after an election. So you have here the difficulty with lending to a democracy when the voters can vote out the politicians. And if you look at the opinion polls in Greece, PASOK, which is the party that was ruling up until just a few months ago, is at 8% in the opinion polls. You think Congress is unpopular? That's 8% rating for the opinion polls. And the three quite left-wing parties are combined totals of 42.5% in the polls. So you can make the regular politicians you know, put their nose to the grindstone, but the voters will rebel if you ask them to take too much pain. And that's really the theme of the book, that you can see history as a battle between creditors and debtors, with the nature of money, really, as the battleground. So let me try and illustrate the theme. Um, again, being toured around uh, by Jim, I went to get a coffee today, and um, I paid with uh, this which is a $5 note. Now, back in Britain, and I don't know why I can't get away with this in Dallas, I would pay with this. Now, not only does this, is this actually worth more than $5, but it's got the Queen's head on it. Wouldn't you want that rather? I know it says, I promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of £10. There's no promise on here. There's a picture of Abraham Lincoln, but that's it. There's, he's not promising anything. So <laughs> why can't I use this? 
why can't I go to my kids' Monopoly set and take some of that out? Because some of my Monopoly notes have 500 written on them. I should be able to get 100 Starbucks out of that. What's the answer? The answer is, of course, this over here is legal tender. So it depends on the fact that we think the government can stand behind the money supply and give it value. And you only have to go to a country like Zimbabwe, where the government created so much money it didn't stand behind the money supply, to see what happens when that breaks down. Secondly, what's the other sort of money you can use? You can use your debit card or credit card, uh, and they will accept that. Now, why will they accept that when they don't know um, who, uh, the finances of the bank? Again, because they believe that the government will stand behind the banking system as it did in 2007-2008. So this bit of money is essentially a statement of faith in our economy and in our government, that the economy will keep on going so that the government will be able to meet their bills. And I mentioned that Zimbabwe had sort of failed the test by protecting the value, failing to protect the value of its money, and Greece has failed the test in that it cannot pay its bills. It cannot raise money in the markets on its own. It needs subsidies from Germany and the rest of Europe to do so. Indeed, somebody sent me a joke the other day. It's a, an Irishman, a Spaniard, an Italian go into a bar. Who pays for the drinks? The German. So, and Germany, not very happy about it, I can tell you. So when you think about money, what's, what are its key functions? Well, there are two things. First of all, I'm, when I go into Starbucks, I can use this. It's a means of exchange. So I could go into Starbucks and say, um, OK, I'd like a Starbucks coffee, please. Can I give you a little speech about the history of the euro? Um, if I want an extra shot, I can throw in the British pound and the Australian dollar as well. You know, what do you say? And this would be a very difficult... All of you in your businesses, you know, if you're a builder, you could hand over some bricks or something. It, it would be a cumbersome way of conducting economic activity. So we need money as a means of exchange. But it's also a store of value. So we need to be sure that our money will still be worth something next year so I can still buy a Starbucks with this note. And, of course, in 40, 50 years' time, so the money I put aside for a pension will still pay out. So if you think about that, the two functions are really in conflict, and there have been conflict in, over the history. People who believe in the means of exchange function want more money to be created. That's what quantitative easing, that's what fiscal stimulus is all about. Create more money, people will have more money to spend, there'll be more jobs, the economy will grow its way out of the crisis. People who don't believe in that, who believe money is a store of value, think that that will just lead to inflation, you will not solve the problem, and the economy will get into even worse trouble than before. And over history, time after time, we've seen these two um, arguments uh, clash. And you can also say that basically those two arguments represent the interest of the debtors on one side and the creditors on another. So a key character in the book is William Jennings Bryan, who you may recall ran for president three times, 1896, 1904, 1908. And he made this huge speech that you shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. And he represented essentially the farming interest, the heartland interest, you might say today, the people who were struggling with low food prices, struggling to meet their debts. And he wanted silver to be added to the money supply to create a bit of inflation to help the farmers deal with their debts. And he was opposed by the East Coasters. This is a long battle in um, American political history, the, the Heartland versus the East Coast. The Andrew Jackson abolished the, an early version of the central bank. 
um, because they were very suspicious of the moneyed interests on the coast. Now, the fascinating thing is if you flip forward 116 years, there's still that battle going on, but the two sides have switched over. So the Tea Party is a populist movement for austerity. These people would like to see uh, an end to quantitative easing. They would like to see a balanced budget. That is the complete reverse of the position of the Bryanite party in the 1890s. Meanwhile, Wall Street, which back in 1896 was in favor of sound money in a balanced budget, they're very happy about quantitative easing because quantitative easing means that asset prices are kept up and Wall Street profits depend on higher asset prices. So the strange overhistory. Now, it, doesn't, it hasn't really happened in, in, every, in any other country. You go over to Greece and you see the people protesting. They are not calling for a balanced budget. They are calling for the government to keep spending money so they still have their benefits and they still have their jobs. So it's very interesting. America is unique in so many ways, and it's unique in this one too. So over history, what I've tried to explain in the book is that those two functions, as they came into conflict, we have set up various systems to try to manage them. So the gold standard uh, and the use of metallic money was essentially one of those systems. If you go back to the Middle Ages and you had this issue that I have here of not being able to use my £10 note but being able to use dollars, that wouldn't have been a problem. I would have had gold and silver coins and they could have had anybody's head on uh, and I could have gone into a shop and uh, used the coins, whether they're from Holland or... I mean, so how the, the U.S. ended up with a dollar. It was from a, a Joachim Stahler. It was a German coin, the Thaler, that eventually became adopted as the dollar. You could use coins from all over the world. What mattered was how much gold and silver you had in them. So um, for many centuries, that's essentially how money worked. You could use coins, didn't matter where from. But monarchs were always trying to cheat, so uh, the Roman emperors, for example, when they were running short of money to pay their troops, and if you ran short of money to pay your troops and you were a Roman emperor, you would pretty short, shortly be an ex-Roman emperor. They would melt down their silver coins, add copper to them, and then hand out um, the, the new coins to the troops. That was a way of making their money go further. Now, back then, there was no sort of Paulus Krugmanus saying this is an ideal economic policy this will stimulate the economy. They're just doing it to make do. Though it is interesting that we've flipped forward 2,000 years and once again the government is a trouble, having trouble meeting its bills and once again we are creating more money to help. Um, excuse me, just a sorghum vote. Now, we moved on from that later on to have the, uh, the gold standard, which actually came about by almost by accident with Sir Isaac Newton, who um, undervalued silver and meant all the, the gold coins were circulating and not the silver ones. We moved up to have the amount of money tied to gold, because eventually you can't go around very easily handing out gold coins. If, you had, if I was paying for my Starbucks with gold, gold is, what, $1,750 an ounce, I would have to have some sort of electron microscope shave off the edge of gold and, and hand it over to, to the counterman, and they would have to examine it very closely. It just wouldn't work. So we developed pieces of paper, and this is why my £10 note says, I promise to pay the bearer on demand or someone, a piece of paper to show that you own some gold. And once you started to use those pieces of paper, then it was easier to use those than the coins themselves, and they became the standard unit of currency. And similarly, we've moved on from there now, most currency isn't paper money at all or coins. It's just entries on a computer. 
when the central bank does quantitative easing, what it does is it buys bonds from the banks or the private sector, and then it enters some new money on their computer. You know those emails you got, you get from like Nigerian dictators, which say, "Send me your bank account, you know, and we'll credit you with 40 million dollars." This is one of those emails come true. I am Ben Bernanke, Chairman of the Federal Reserve. Please send me your bank details and I will credit your account with $10 million. And then he does it. Fantastic. Um, so money, again, is this very, very notional concept these days. Um, and the gold standard lasted in its sort of pure form for only really about 40 years. Once you got to the First World War, the idea of, a, of England shipping money to shipping gold to Germany while we're at conflict with them to deal with the debt was obviously out of the question. All, all those gold transactions ceased. And they tried to reconstruct it after the First World War. Britain went back on the gold standard in 1925. Churchill regarded that as the biggest mistake of his career, and he made a few. And the problem was that when you got to the 1930s and the economy got in trouble, the amount of money was fixed. There was a shock to the economy if you couldn't do anything with the amount of money, you basically had to cut wages and prices. And people do not like cutting wages and prices. It's exactly the prob same problem in Greece today. In Greece, in 10 years ago, they would have devalued the drachma. Now they cannot do that because they've got the euro. They can't devalue. So you have to cut wages and prices, and people don't like it. And even if you do cut wages and prices, the debt is still denominated at the same level. So your income might fall 30% but your debt is still as high as it was before, so it's even harder to deal with it. So economies all just buckled. They all left the gold standard within five years, from 1931 to 1936. After the Second World War, we had a new system. So that system failed on the part of the creditors. We had Bretton Woods, and Bretton Woods was a system which tied uh, the amount, all currencies in the world, to the dollar, and the dollar to the value of gold. And that, was, that worked pretty well for 27 years. It, it didn't it uh, was a different system from the one we had today. When I was a kid, um, you could not leave Britain with more than £50 worth of foreign, of foreign currency. So if you're, go you're going on holiday, it was a very short foreign holiday. Um, <laughs> most people didn't go on foreign holidays. We didn't have cheap flights back then. Um, and capital movements just did not go around the world in, this, in the way they do today. That system lasted pretty well, but it imposed essentially a constraint on... America. America is the one country which had to exchange dollars for gold. And the French, who never liked American uh, domination of the global economy, the French kept pushing and pushing. In the late 1960s, first under Charles de Gaulle and then Pompidou, they said, OK, give us, some, give us some gold. And the requirement under the system was for the U.S. to adjust its economic policy to make sure other countries in the world could get their gold. Now, I don't want to insult anybody here, but it's experience of everybody in the rest of the world that if American politicians have to choose between satisfying their domestic voters and satisfying international uh, comrades, then domestic voters tend to win. And that was exactly the case in 1971. Richard Nixon, facing an election the next year, he had his own plans for how to win it, but he was not going to lose it by imposing austerity on the voters. And he went off the link to gold, and exchange rates have floated ever since. So from 1971, we have been in this world, a kind of world that we haven't ever seen before in history. There is nothing standing behind this um, but our faith in each other and our faith in 
uh, governments to keep the, the whole system going. So what's happened since 1971? What's happened since 1971 is that we have had a huge explosion of debt. So consumers who were cautious about debt, my father grew up in the 1930s, he would not have a credit card, he would not take on debt. Uh, we moved from that world to where people were having credit cards mailed to them, where they were being offered debt over the phone, um, on TV. Uh, when I, again, was to, when I left college and you wanted a housing loan, you had to go cap in hand. I don't know if it's the same here, but in Britain you had to go cap in hand to the lender and say, I'm a very responsible pe- person, you know, I've got a job, I'm getting married, all that kind of thing. After about 1980, there was none of that. You, you just, they were handing out loans like confetti. Um, and, of course, uh, companies, they change their attitude towards debt, too. You used to have lots of AAA-rated companies. Now, if you're a company, you're told your, your balance sheet isn't efficient unless you have more debt. You're encouraged to borrow money and uh, buy back shares. So we changed the attitude to debt in the consumer sector and in the uh, corporate sector and, of course, in the financial sector. Go back to the 19th century, and banks had capital ratios of 25%. They really were solid to make sure that people believed in them. But then by 2006, 2007, banks had capital ratios of 3 or 4%. And the reason was um, that it was very much in their incentive to do it. They were incentivized because they were quoted on the stock market to maximize short-term profits. Uh, and maximizing short-term profits meant borrowing more money and often borrowing more money to invest in assets or lend against assets. So you have for this long period, this great economic boom, this sort of virtuous circle where banks lent money to people to buy assets. The assets rose in price. That, felt, that made banks feel more confident. So they lent more money, which meant prices go up, went up further and so on and so on. And every time the markets wobbled, as they did in uh, 1987, uh, in the early 90s, in 1998, when long-term capital management suffered, in 2001, all of those occasions, central banks tended to cut interest rates to rescue um, the markets from their problems and the economy from their problems. And if you think about it, over time, there was nothing more uh, likely to give speculators a kind of one-way bet, what we used to call the Greenspan put. You knew that if the markets wobbled, the Fed would come to the rescue. And here we are again today. The markets had this huge wobble in 2008, and interest rates were at, are at zero. So the culmination of this long process then was this huge level of debt relative to GDP and a whole series of asset bubbles from you know, emerging markets, dot-com stocks, and then housing. So where do we go from here? Now we've got to this point. It's a unique point in economic history. Well, there's good news and there's bad news. So the, let's start with the bad news because I'm often accused of being depressing and I'll, I want to have some good news <laughs> The bad news is that uh, debt is all about confidence. If you lend money, uh, then both the lender and the borrower needs to be confident that the borrower can pay the money back and can pay interest on top. So there has to be an element of confidence that things are going to grow. The income of the borrower is going to grow. The asset price at which um, you've, you've lent against is going to grow. You know, Joe seems like a confident guy. He, he's a shrewd guy, confident guy, but he sort of assesses the risks and makes sure he's not going to be lending money to people who look like deadbeats or investing in kind of swamp land. So it's all a matter of confidence. Um, and that confidence was sort of borne out in the last 25 years, up to 2007. House prices were always going up. We only had very short recessions in the economy. 
Population was growing fast. Economic growth was, was very steady. Confidence was borne out. But now, if you were looking at Europe, what have you got now? You've got this uh, a recession. We're going back into a recession in Europe just two or three years after the last recession. We've got huge um, bills for the taxpayer and countries imposing austerity. And a key factor, you've got demography right against you. Workforces in Europe are going to uh, fall over the next 30 to 40 years in many countries. And economic growth is about two things, the number of workers that you have and how productive you can make them. If the number of workers that you have is falling, it's very difficult to get economic growth. You can boost productivity, and they're trying, but it's a kind of slow process, 1% to 2% a year, and it's, it's very hard to grow. So look at Japan, which has gone through 20 years um, with very little economic growth in nominal terms and still has all the debt and more that it started the process with and still has asset prices which are well below the levels of 1989. Don't believe, when people say stocks for the long run, they will always go up. That's not an ironclad rule because you only have to look at Japan to see that's very much not the case. The surest way to make prices fall rapidly is to have everybody believe they can only go up. That's what happened in, with U.S. houses. People thought they could never go down at the national level. But they can. You just have to make them at a stupid price. And then they've got only one direction to go. So that's the depressing news for Europe. It's going to be very difficult for them to get out of the debt crisis. So I'm going to be positive about America and say that if there's one country that can get out of the debt crisis, it is America. You have much better demography. You have a younger population. You've had more immigrants population is growing steadily. Uh, you also have a more dynamic economy. I mean, you have to look around Dallas, but then you can go to California and see the Silicon Valley. You can think about biotech companies. You can look at the companies which are creating new wealth and new products. Just look at Apple, which was once down and out. Um, nothing to do with, uh, we, we had a piece on state capitalism uh, a couple of weeks ago, but you could not imagine China producing an Apple. This is a classic example of American innovation, one company being able to produce a product that nobody thought they would want in advance. But as soon as they got it out, everybody wants one. I remember going in, we were choosing between computers with my wife, and, you, and we just went and looked at a Mac, and it's just beautiful relative to all the, all the others are kind of clunky, and you just look at that, and it's beautiful, and everybody wants it when they see it. And that's a, that's a huge advantage. So America has a chance of growing its way out of the crisis in a way that Europe does not. The bad news, however, uh, from that point of view, so I shouldn't really be finishing with bad news, but I just have to mention this, uh, is that um, it's, America will not have the same freedom of action that it has in the past. It has been able, there was that much talk of, under the first George Bush of the, the unipolar moment in world history where America was the dominant economic power and it could do what it liked. But that has shifted, really, over the last 20 years. Um, the systems that I was talking about, the gold standard, Bretton Woods, they were set by the creditor nations. So Britain set the terms of the gold standard. Bretton Woods was set by America. So when this whole debt crisis emerges and we get some sort of new monetary order, which I think we will, and I can talk about that later if you like, China is going to be the key factor in determining what the, what the system is like. And you cannot ignore the wishes of your creditor once you start getting, getting into trouble. My sister's not very good with money, and she's always threatening to write to her a bank manager and take her overdraft elsewhere. Well, 
You, you can't do that very easily. There was a very good example for Britain. We're used to kind of like a century of economic decline. In 1956, Britain and France decided after NASA nationalized the Suez Canal that they would send in this mission to occupy the canal and keep it open for international shipping. President Eisenhower rang um, Anthony Eden, the British Prime Minister, and said, no, you don't, because we're going to organize a run on the pound if you don't um, withdraw. And we withdrew very, very quickly indeed, national humiliation. The French learned from that that they should always oppose America in everything, virtually. And the British learned from that that we should always stick as close to America as everything and never do anything that um, America didn't like. So you, can draw, you drew different lessons from the, that. But, but the idea then, going forward, that America will be able to act as it likes without Chinese say-so, particularly over an issue like Taiwan, I think is, is fundamentally foolish. The two economies are bound together, and let's hope it's all organized peacefully. But it's not just possible for America to, organize, to um, overlook Chinese wishes. And just to go back to that Greece issue, Germany views Greece as this kind of spendthrift nation which hasn't uh, met its bills and retires too early and spends too much money on fancy goods. That's how the Chinese view America. You should look, if you can, you can find it on the internet. It's called the Xinhua News Agency. That's X-I-N-H-U-A. They put out a statement after America was downgraded by Standard & Poor's. And it basically said, you can't go on like this. America is spending too much. You need to sort yourself out. It was like a letter from a bank manager uh, or from a father to a kid who's overspent his allowance at university. It was just like that. That's their attitude to America now. And so that needs to be sorted out. A deal needs to be reached between the U.S. and China where China agrees to let its exchange rate rise steadily over time and America agrees to uh, organize its debts and keep its debts down. And to finish on that positive note, I think that deal can be possible, and that's what the new world order will look like. And thank you very much for coming. Okay, we will take a few questions, and we have some uh, questions on cards from some high school students at LD Bell, so I'd like to uh, ask the first question. Over there. Yes, uh, oh, okay. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, the first question is, is the solution to the Greece crisis following a demand-side uh, policy such as Keynesian approach or a supply-side approach following Hayek's theories? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'll put that one on. No. Um, <laughs> no, that's a good question. Um, well, a demand-side approach would... Um, require Greece to be able to borrow the money from somewhere to run a huge fiscal stimulus because they they are, as you know, running a large deficit already. But they cannot finance that deficit on the market. So they are therefore dependent on foreign uh, countries, uh, Germany in particular, to lend them money just to meet their day-to-day bills. Would Germany agree to Uh, increase that overdraft, if you like, to 12%, 13% of GDP a year in the hope of stimulating the Greek economy, not a chance. There are a lot of people in Europe, I did a column about this um, in last week's issue about the war on finance, people who want to declare war on their creditors. You know, the Europeans are very keen on saying people should, you know, not complain, not speculate in the markets. What they're essentially saying is we hate you all and we'd like you to lend us money at 2 or 3%. Well, you can't Go on like that. You cannot do that. You have to listen to what the creditors want. So, unfortunately for Greece, there's no chance of them pursuing a Keynesian-style um, solution. 
So on the Hayekian one of um, letting the sort of um, whole crisis flood itself out, so the capital's destroyed and that new businesses are created. I mean, that's happening almost by default rather than by design. But there is plenty of reform to be done from going to Greece, in, in Greece. I was um, there at the beginning of last year, and the taxi drivers were on strike because they were being asked to reply, supply receipts. This is a very strange economy. There are lots of people up there who... The number of people who declare a tax uh, income of over 100,000 euros a year is tiny, when clearly there are you know, millions of people who could do it. So um, there are plenty of reforms that will go in Greece. The problem is that the deal that Germans are insisting on is we will lend you money if you pursue this reform policy, including cutting all your benefits. And the population just does not like it. There's a general strike today. There are protests today. And it's, it's a fundamental issue with democracy. Can you impose this kind of stuff on, on um, democracies? Greece already has an unelected um, prime minister, and so does Italy. And is, is that where we're going, that the only people who can push this through are, are central bankers and technocrats? When do you see inflation heading back into the system? It seems to me the only way out is growth, as you'd mentioned, or inflating the money supply, money supply, pardon me, and paying it back in cheaper dollars, the debt. Yes. Well, I mean, it's a great um, strength of countries like America and Deep Britain, which issue debt in their own currency to be able to inflate away their debts, and it's what has often happened in the past. I mean, uh, what's, hap what's happened so far, however, is that the money that the Fed has created um, has tended to just sit in the banking system. It has not gone out there and been used to stimulate the economy significantly. I mean, America is doing better than Britain, but um, a, a lot of the money, it's same in Europe, when the European Central Bank just um, expanded its balance sheet, the, the money that it's lent to banks has ended up back with it. So it's a, pro it's a, it's a problem economists call pushing on a string. Uh, the other issue is that there is a lot of unemployment in, in most countries in the developed world. Wages are not rising. So we have had a little bit of inflation, as you know, with food and energy prices. But that's it's the kind of wrong kind of inflation. If you want to get rid of a debt crisis, you want wages to go up so it's easier for people to pay back their debts. What you don't want is for wages to be flat and energy and food prices to be up because that means that people have even less disposable income to deal with the debts, and that's what we've had so far. Um, so I don't think inflation is going to happen in the next two or three years, but yes, down, down the line. And the, the example, the analogy I tend to use is the ketchup bottle, where you shake and shake and shake, and it, nothing comes out, and then suddenly, <laughs> and it all goes all over the plate. And, that, and that's the risk that we face. Well, they're going to default on their debts. Um, leaving the actual euro is a real problem for them because um, their debts will still be in euros and their income will be in drachma, escudos, which will be 30 40% lower. So uh, that's the issue. If you default on your debts when you're in dollars and you're still earning dollars or you write it down, it's, it's not a problem. Leaving the euro would mean that they would have to balance their budgets overnight because they could still not borrow money from anybody. Uh, so that would mean even more austerity than they got at the moment. It would mean that uh, the banks and companies in uh, Greece and Portugal would probably go bust uh, because they have their debts in euros too. So it's a very difficult thing to get out of once you've got into it. Um, 
Might it happen in the long run? Yes, I think you're right. I think they're going to do everything possible. And the second reason is that it's in the rest of Europe's interest for them to stay in. Because let's suppose Greece leaves tomorrow. If you're a Portuguese bank depositor, you will see that Greek bank depositors have just had their, all their money switched from euros to drachma and lost 30 or 40% of their savings overnight. It happened in Argentina 10 years ago. So you would think to yourself as a Portuguese bank depositor, I'm not going to let that happen to me. I'm going to drive over the border into Spain or even further into France or Germany and put my euros in somebody else's bank, and then they can't do that to my savings. So you would have an immediate run on all the banks in the country that feared would be threatened, which would just make the crisis even worse. So that's why the Germans are desperate to keep the uh, Greeks in and why they're, in the end the Germans will have to pay, I'm afraid. Uh, from Dylan Pitts at LD Bell kind of a uh, part two to that question. If the euro were to, d to dissolve, how would it affect the American economy? Okay, well, I, I think you can see, as I tried to illustrate at the start, that, you know, with the Dow down, that, that this is a very significant risk. It's very significant risk on two levels. The first is that banks have lent money to Europe, and banks will have bad debts if um, the euro zone goes down. And the second is that Europe is a huge market for American exports and that if Europe goes into a recession that affects American businesses. Uh, there's also an issue, I suppose, that um, of a contagion worldwide. Once you start to worry about countries not paying debts, eventually attention may turn to America. I think America is probably the last country in the line, to, the last domino to fall. But you just have to look at the projections for federal expenditure and the projections for federal revenues and see the gap getting ever wider. Uh, and at some point, that will cause an enormous crisis, not, not this year or next year, but at some point, unless it's sorted out, it will. So uh, you should have to be careful that um, a crisis in Europe doesn't eventually provoke a crisis here, too. Why is China such a kingpin now? What gives them that credibility or strength? Well, they have a very successful economy which has been growing 8, 9, 10% a year. I mean, not everybody believes the data, but uh, anybody who's been there will see you know, the huge cities that are being, being built, cities you've never heard of that have 7 million, 8 million people. Uh, they're a uh, fantastic you know, producer in many areas. They are moving up the value chain, so they are you know, shifting towards higher margin products. They are the big creditors of the world. They own 3.2 um, trillion of foreign exchange reserves, of which at least half is in dollars, maybe 60% are in dollars. So they, they, you know, they do hold the purse strings. They are enormously influential in uh, the emerging world. If you're an emerging nation and you think to yourself, which model shall I choose? Shall I choose what we, we at the Economist would choose, call the Anglo-Saxon model of sort of free markets and liberalization? Uh, which has just produced the biggest crisis um, for 70 years, or do I choose the Chinese model, which doesn't seem to produce much of a crisis and which keeps growing forever, then you might well choose that one. Uh, and so they are gaining influence all the time. They're buying up natural resources around the world. They are aiding nations that we don't like to aid. You know, their, their voice is growing. And they are 1.3 billion people, which is one in six of the world's population. So... Uh, I think it was Napoleon who said, um, China is asleep, but when China wakes, it will shake the world. And here we are, we're in the shaking period. Ah, now that's very good, very good question. Um, well, it is defaulting. It is in the process of 
just deciding whether they're defaulting by 65 or 70 percent on their debt, which is quite significant. Uh, but they're defaulting only to their private sector creditors. And this is uh, something I think is fundamentally wrong-headed. They are trying to strive that the deal is perceived as voluntary, and uh, they want the deal to be voluntary so the credit default swap insurance is not triggered. Now, the way it works, um, there's a committee called ISDA, International Swap and Derivatives Association, I think. Don't hold me to that acronym, uh, but it's like that. Swap Dealers Association, that's what it is. International Swap Dealers Association. They decide whether a default is triggers a CDS or not. Uh, if it's, their rule is if it's voluntary, it doesn't, and if it's compulsory, it does. And they are honour-bound, the Europeans are determined not to make it compulsory. So what, what does that mean? It means that they are trying to make sure that CDS are worthless. Uh, why do they want that? Because they hate speculators and they think it would all reward hedge funds and stuff. Uh, what is the consequence of that? The consequence of that, I think, is uh, counterproductive because if you are an investor, you'll think, you might think of trying to bargain hunt in, say, Spanish or Italian debt, uh, but you might want to insure yourself against the risk of default when you do that, but you won't be able to insure yourself against the risk of default because the C you'll know that the CDS won't help you. So I think it's wrong-headed, and um, I, I wish they'd change their mind, but that's the way they seem determined to go. Do you think the party is going to be effective in influencing the amount of America's debt and reducing it? Well, I think it already has been uh, effective, hasn't it? I mean, if you look at the number of Republicans which are committed not to raise taxes, if you look at the great struggle that uh, you had to pass an increase in the debt ceiling last August, then that was very much down to the influence of the Tea Party. I mean, I'm not sure, there's one of those old sayings about being careful what you wish for. I'm not, I'm not sure if they really had their policies come into effect, they would be quite as happy as you think about it. The problem is, is immediately having a balanced budget amendment, for example. So the U.S. is running an annual deficit of about a trillion dollars. And you couldn't raise taxes, okay? So suddenly a trillion dollars would have to be cut from spending. That would be, you know, benefits to people who spend money or goods that the government orders. The whole problem with the economy is it's so circular. My income is your expenditure, if you buy the book, for example. Uh, if I buy a Starbucks, my income is, uh, my um, expenditure is the Starbucks income. So if you suddenly yank out a whole amount of expenditure from the economy, then everybody's, lots of people's incomes will suffer and their demand will suffer and you would, you would get a quite steep recession immediately. Now you might say in the long run it would be better if government was a smaller proportion of, of the economy and the economy was more in the hands of the private sector and I wouldn't disagree with you. The trouble is how quickly do you get from the long run to the short run? And I think the answer is to go there at one step at a time rather than all in one great rush. And if you really want them, Charles Schwab wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal saying the Fed should get out of um, managing interest rates um, and let interest rates rise to their natural level, just Tuesday, I think it was. Uh, if you really had interest rates at 3% so that mortgage rates were, I don't know, what, oh, Joe's gone, whatever the mortgage rate would be, 6 7% instead of 4 or 5 now, you'd have a lot more people in trouble defaulting on their loans. You'd have businesses make it, finding it more difficult to make ends meet. So again you would have a quite a negative Im impact on the economy. So there is a huge difference between bring, scaling back government in the long run and doing it all at once. Cut to the chase for me and tell me how you're investing for your retirement. 
it's a very good question. Um, I, uh, and I have to give a very dull answer, which is that um, I have a very, very diversified portfolio. So um, I have, in Britain, we have the equivalent of TIPS, which are index-linked gilts, which are gilts linked to inflation. So to cover the risk that that gentleman has, uh, that was referring to about inflation, I have a significant amount of money in that area. Uh, then I have uh, exposure to the growing economies of the world and the emerging markets, which are... If you look at the developing world, it used to be all the crises were in the developing world. But look, perhaps in this week's Economist, which is outside, I've written a piece about this, there's um, the ratio of debt to GDP in the uh, developing world is much, much lower than the ratio of debt to GDP in the, de in the developed world. So the emerging markets are in a strong and getting stronger position relative to there. So those are the two bets that I'm making relative to you know, how you might have your portfolio a protection against inflation and an exposure to the faster growing economies of the world. Obviously, if long term interest rates go up, the value of your inflation linked bonds will go down. It will. But my, uh, there's a, I, I write a lot about pensions, my sins, and my liability in retirement is based on inflation, right? So I need an income in retirement that goes up with inflation. Uh, and that's what index linked gilts and tips give you. You know that yes, okay, your your uh, your price market price might fall, but your uh, debt is repaid at maturity at whatever the starting price is, plus all the inflation in the interim. Okay, so you're not in the, if there is inflation, you're not going to lose if you hold the bonds to maturity, uh, and you are going to be protected against inflation. It's not an exciting investment, but it is a good safe investment. Developing worlds are what which countries oh sorry um so that's um those generally what described as outside the oecd so uh, which is the organization of economic cooperation and development so it's much of asia much of latin america few bits of africa few bits of the middle east um china, china. yes absolutely yes yes okay. i mean you you the emer emerging I, I mean emerging markets but i'm uh we use developers, working for the economists, sorry. Uh, so, um, so the emerging markets are those countries which generally have lower um, GDP per head figures, you know, and are not as rich as the rest. And their growth rates are faster. The trouble with emerging markets is they're very volatile. So the best, they had a very bad year last year, but that perversely makes them a better. The best time to invest is when they're out of favor and when their valuations are cheaper than those on developed markets. The worst time to invest is when everybody's talking about them and they are more expensive. Their valuations are more expensive than developed markets. So they have years up 40% and then down 40%, but over the long run, over the last decade, they've vastly outperformed developed. So, like, uh, Qatar, for example? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't. You're going, yeah, yeah, exactly. You're, you're, you're going beyond my Nicaraguan equities. I know I should know, but I'm, <laughs> I, I don't. Okay, you had mentioned something that I remember seeing in George, Fried George Friedman book, uh, Friedman's book about uh, the critical role that population grow uh, growth plays in, uh, will, will play in our future. So in his book, he talks about how the paradigm is going to shift in, in the next 20 to 50 years, and we'll all be, the developed countries will be competing for immigrants uh, to help, help prop up our social safety programs and so forth, our, our safety nets. 
if, um, what is Greece's attitude toward immigration? And if they did have a bunch of immigrants, do they have any homegrown industry that they could briefly employ those people in? The, the biggest industry in Greece is tourism. Uh, actually, Greece's exports are up 43% over the last year, um, but for a very low base. Uh, and tourism, uh, it's by an odd thing, counts as an export, um, though it sounds strange, but it is. It's sort of selling services overseas. Um, so, yes, they, they could do. I mean, they've got plenty of unemployment. They could <laughs> employ some Greeks in this business. But if you're in the EU, you have to accept people from anywhere else in the EU. There's plenty of bits of Eastern Europe of people who will move there. They, they do have um, a slightly... Um, up and down relationship with the likes of Albania, where people move there, which isn't in the EU. Uh, but you know, as in Britain, it's it, uh, as we're discovering, it's actually quite difficult to control the level of immigrants. You cannot do anything about people from the rest of the EU. So um, we've had in the last few years, for example, a lot of Polish people come over. Almost every street corner has a Polish shop now, including mine. Uh, the Polish are the builders, and, and most people are very glad to have them because they work very hard and um, are very responsible, which is not always true of my fellow countrymen, unfortunately. One more question. Okay. Uh, you have uh, mentioned the bubbles, and there is a uh, book out called uh, Aftershock, which has dealt with bubble economies such as the uh, Internet bubble popping and then the real estate bubble. And uh, the one they're talking about now in the latest version is the United States with our debt, so that the problem of us heading toward a precipice with the debt bubble and possibly the problem in the confidence in the, of the world in the American dollar. Now, you touched briefly on that, that we're the last one in line, that we're heading that way. Do you have any feeling for the, uh, is this something that's going to happen? You know, how far off are we on this? Right. What, what are your uh, comments? No, it's a very good question. Um, if you, the last time Treasury bond yields were about this level was in 1949. If you bought then and held for 10 years, you lost money in real terms every year. If you held for 30 years, you lost money in real terms every year. Lending the government money at 2% historically has not been a very good deal. So uh, I'm not, I'm not uh, suggesting nominal bonds as a great investment. However, you only have to look at Japan to see that in Japan, which has had similar debt problems, yields then fell to 1% and have stayed there. And, and I know a number of hedge funds who have um, given up in frustration at shorting the Japanese bond market because they thought yields were bound to rise. So um, timing is of the essence. If you can tell me what's going to happen uh, in 2013, if let's say um, there is another divided presidency and Congress, and there is another battle... Um, to raise the debt ceiling, and if um, Congress sort of pulls the trigger and says, no, we're not going to raise the debt ceiling and we're going to have a technical default in the bond market, then if that's going to happen, then I would be very worried about you know, bonds in those circumstances. Um, but So the, the biggest threat is almost homegrown. If you sort of um, shoot yourselves in their own foot, then you'd have a trouble. At the moment, people are only too happy to lend to America at 2% because they look around the world, they've got Greece, they've got Portugal, they've got... Um, Italy and America looks great in those circumstances. So uh, the future is kind of in your own hands for several years, provided um, Congress gets its act together, or Washington gets its act together. Thank you, Philip. Um, for more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web 
at www.dfwworld.org.